Well, if you would this morning, grab a Bible and open your Bible up to the book of Romans. Our sermon this morning is from Romans chapter 11, and we're going to be looking at verses 33 through 36. Romans 11, starting in verse 33. Hear the word of our God. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we ask now that you would open up your word to us, that we might hear and believe, that we might see, and that we might worship. We want to go where Paul goes. He's looking upon you, and his heart is lifted up, and we want to look upon you this morning, and we want our hearts lifted up in worship to you. So now we pray, please do this pray this in your son's name. Amen. Close and careful study of God, close and careful study of God should result in the worship of God. If we are really seeing, if we are really hearing, our heart should make a movement towards the Lord. Meaning our, our love for God should increase, our joy in God should grow, and as a result of our seeing and our hearing, there should be holiness in our lives. There should be practical ramifications to our knowledge of God. Now, if these things are missing in our study of God, we should go back and we should retrace our steps. We should, if any of these things are missing, ask ourselves all sorts of questions. Am I really seeing? Am I really hearing? Are my eyes actually working? Are my ears, do they actually work? Is there actually anything going on in my heart? Did I miss it? Did I take a wrong turn? Did I get the facts wrong? Where did I go wrong? Because a close and careful study of God should result in the worship of God. In fact, this is a good test to apply to ourselves in the midst of this study. And so in this study, we're encountering big theology. We've learned all of these big words about God. We've learned about aseity. We've learned about incomprehensibility. We've learned about simplicity. We've learned about omnipresence and eternality and immutability. We've learned all of these great and big words. And we need to ask as we're learning these big words, are they doing anything to us? Is this big theology raising my affections for God? Is there love in my soul for God? And is that love increasing for God? How about joy? Is joy increasing? Is there a, a happiness in my soul for God? Are there any practical ramifications in my life because of this big theology? Have I used any of these doctrines to fight against discouragement? 
Have I, have I used any of these big doctrines to fight against sin, to, to battle against temptation? Am I able to use this theology? Now we have this test in front of us. Close and careful study of God should result in the worship of God. If we were to take this test and apply it to the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, I think what we would find is this, that Paul passes the test. As we think about the book of Romans, the book of Romans might be the densest theology in all of Scripture. It is a dense book. Paul, in this letter to the church in Rome, unfolds the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he does so with great detail and specificity. And in the book of Romans, I think there is no place denser than chapters 9 through 11. In chapters 9 through 11, these three chapters, Paul intensively wrestles with God's plan of salvation. Paul is looking at God, considering what God has done and what God is doing. He sees that God is casting off peoples and he's gathering in others. He's electing people with sovereign mercy and grace and passing over others. He sees God bringing his, his great plan of salvation to completion after, after thousands of years. And as Paul is looking at God, you can tell that Paul is sweating. He is working hard as he's writing and thinking. He might even be panting from all of the exertion. And as we think about Paul in these chapters, chapters 9 through 11, it's like he's down on the, the metaphorical wrestling mat as he's wrestling with God and his, his faithfulness and his mercy and his wisdom as he's trying to understand God's plan for the gospel. And if you pick up these chapters and you try to pick your way through these chapters, you feel the wrestle as well. You, you cannot help but to feel it. You start to sweat with Paul and it feels like you're thrown down on the wrestling mat and you're being contorted in all these different ways as you're trying to understand what Paul is saying about God. But here's the interesting thing about Romans chapter 9 through 11. All of Paul's careful study of God, all of Paul's wrestling and thinking and writing and sweating and panting produces something in Paul. This is amazing. Paul ends these three chapters and he doesn't end them with a weary sigh, I'm tired. He doesn't look out the window after these three chapters and he's disinterested in what he has thought about and what he has written about. He doesn't slump over in his chair. Rather, what does he do as he concludes these three chapters? Well, the answer is this, he worships and it's white hot worship. Listen again to what Paul says. After wrestling with God, he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, amen. Paul's study of God results in the worship of God. Just listen to those words. Think through them with me for a bit. Look at the beginning of verse 33. Paul starts his worship of God with one little word. He says, oh, and that's an interjection. And what Paul is doing, he's starting his sentence off with an exclamation point. He's not hiding his heart from us. He is showing us what he is feeling. He's saying, my heart is lifted up. My joy is overflowing. Oh. And Paul goes on. What has Paul's attention? As he says, oh, as he worships. Well, the answer is God. 
And three matters about God catches Paul's attention. First, there are the riches of God. That is his loving kindness towards sinners. God forgives sins. He cancels debts. He justifies the unrighteous. That's what Paul means when he speaks of God's riches. Second, there is God's wisdom. And that most assuredly has to do with God's great plan of salvation as he brings the gospel of Jesus Christ both to Jews and to Greeks. And then Paul says, there is God's knowledge. And we're going to think about that a lot this morning. And so what Paul sees of God moves his heart. Paul loves God's riches, God's wisdom, God's knowledge. And there is a reason why Paul loves these matters about, about God so much. He tells us that there are inexhaustible depths to them. Oh, the depths of all of these matters. And what Paul is saying, there is no bottom to the well of God's riches or God's wisdom, or God, God's knowledge. They are all in themselves infinitely expansive. So Paul's worshiping, but Paul doesn't stop there with those three aspects of God. He continues in his wonder. He speaks about God's judgments, God's ways. They are unsearchable, he says, meaning that you will never be able to map them out. And then he uses another word. He says they are unscrutable, saying that they are far beyond all human comprehension. But Paul isn't done yet. When someone gets really excited about something, they sometimes begin to do this. They start to ask questions. And when they ask these questions, they're not really looking for answers. They're not looking for someone to say, hey, I know that answer. No, they're speaking of this, this unique thing or unique person. And so this is what Paul does. He look at verse 34, verse 35. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? And as we take in these questions, Paul's point is emphatic. No one knows the mind of the Lord. No one has given God counsel. No one has ever really given anything to God that he might have to repay them for it. And Paul is teaching us the Lord, only he knows his own mind. The Lord, he only counsels himself. The Lord, he is altogether sufficient. And so Paul concludes his praise with these words. For from him and through him are, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And as we take in these verses at the end of chapter 11, it's not hard to see Paul's heart here. Paul is wearing his heart on his sleeve. He loves the Lord his God, it is evident. And he doesn't love the Lord his God vaguely or generically. He loves the Lord his God specifically. He loves the boundless depths of God's knowledge. He loves his inscrutable ways and his unsearchable mind. Or to use another word that sums up all of these words that Paul is using about God, Paul loves God's omniscience. Paul loves God's omniscience. He loves that God knows all things. Things past, things present, things future. He loves that God's knowledge is infinite and vast and encompassing absolutely everything. And so in light of Paul's words this morning at the end of chapter 11, we can get our sentence. God is omniscient. God is omniscient. And so what do we mean by omniscience as we speak of God? And so omniscience is a word like omnipresence, or eternality, it's a word that is speaking about God's immensity, God's plenitude. And what this word is doing is it's taking God's immensity and God's plenitude and applying it to a specific area of life. And this specific area is the area of knowledge and ideas and intellect. 
And so the idea here is this. As God's infinite being relates to knowledge, there are no limits, no edges, no boundaries to his knowledge. So that's just a shot at a definition of omniscience. But we need to work harder here to try to understand what, it, what does it mean for God to be omniscient? As we try to understand this big word, the Bible gives us some immediate help. The Bible gives us some metaphors to grab hold of this doctrine. And I want to point out two of them to you this morning. Our first help from the Bible is this, light. As we read the Bible, we often see that the Bible compares God's existence, God's life to that of light. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says this, God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Paul in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, describes God's existence like this, he who dwells in unapproachable light. Psalm 36, verse 9 says this, for with you is the fountain of light. In your light, we see light. So the scriptures are speaking of God. They want us to think of God's life as a life of light. And we need to think this through. What does this mean? Well, we can frame it like this. What is the problem with darkness? Well, it's a simple problem you can't see. Whatever is in the darkness isn't known. It's not understood because you can't see it. Think about the bottom of the ocean. It's impenetrable to us because it is so dark. And because it's so dark, we don't know what is there. Or or think about that sound you hear in the middle of the night. There's a bump or a knock, and it's a mystery to you. Why? Because it's shrouded in darkness. But as we think about God's life, the scriptures teach us that God's life is light. And so in God's perfect life, there is not a speck of darkness. So what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that there is no evil in God. It speaks of God's moral life. But it also does something else. It teaches us that God knows himself perfectly. To put it like this, there is no part of God's eternal life and an infinite being that he doesn't know infinitely and perfectly. God knows himself infinitely and perfectly because God is all light and there is no darkness in him. Think about your own life. Think about your own personality. There's often dark corners in our own lives, just not morally, but just intellectually. We don't even understand ourselves most of the time. Why did I do that? Why do I think like that? Why am I reacting like this? But as we think about God, there are no shadows or dark corners in God. He is all knowledge, and his knowledge is true and perfect and complete knowledge of himself. God is all light, and so he knows himself perfectly. So that's our first help. God is light, and that's glorious. Our second help is this, ears and eyes. And so we know God is pure spirit. He doesn't actually have ears or eyes, but the scriptures often speak of God with metaphor, talking about ears and eyes, the ears and eyes of God, to help us understand what it means for God to know. So for example, 2 Corinthians 16 verse 9 says this, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. Or Psalm 94 verse 9 says this of the Lord, He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Or perhaps Hebrews 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the point is really plain here what the scriptures are making. There is nothing out of earshot of God. There is no whisper that he does not hear, and there is nothing hidden from his gaze. Nothing is hidden from his eyes. Not only does he know himself perfectly and completely, but his knowledge extends to all things, and he knows all things perfectly and completely. Augustine, he he writes about this knowing of God, and he writes in a very provocative way. He says this about God's knowledge. God is all I because he sees all things. What a way to think about God. God is all I because he sees all things. And we could add, God is all ear because he hears all things. So as we're trying to understand this doctrine, the Bible is giving us help. If we want to understand omniscience, we should first think about light. Light. God is light. He knows himself perfectly. And then we ought to think about ears and eyes. God knows everything outside of himself. He hears all. He sees all. But here we need to keep thinking and we need to think hard. As we think about God's knowledge, there are some pesky questions that come and bother of us. It's like early summer, there's the black flies and they come out and they just harass you and they don't leave you alone, just pecking at you and chewing on you. And there are questions as we think about God's knowledge that are just like black flies. They they come after us and they're pesky and they won't leave us alone until we can answer them. And so what I want to do is I want to work through a few questions about God's knowledge and they're going to build off of each other. They're going to start easy and they're going to get harder to try to answer some of these questions that might be popping up in your mind. So the first question in this series is a really easy one. What does God know? Well, we've already answered that question. God is light, therefore he knows himself perfectly and completely. Even more, because of God's ears and eyes, as the scriptures speak of them, he knows everything else. He knows all things. So George Swinnock, a Puritan, gives some teeth to this answer. He writes, God knows what was, what is, what will be, what can be, and what cannot be. He knows all substances, qualities, and contingencies. In sum, he knows everything. So that's the first question. What does God know? Well, we answer, of course, he knows everything, himself first, and everything in light of himself. And then we follow up and we ask, well, really, does God really know everything? How about all of the small things in this world? And think about it, there are so many small things in this world. There are ants, How many ants are in this world? Billions and billions and billions of them. And then there are things smaller than ants. There are things called bacteria. You have to have a microscope to see them. And there are more than you could ever imagine counting of bacteria in this world. And then there are things even smaller than bacteria. They're called nanobes. They're a tenth of the size of the smallest bacteria. And we think about all of these small things in their world. And we ask, can God really know all of them? Can he know all of these organisms with perfect and complete knowledge? There's seemingly endless number of them. And here we might have a few doubts, and maybe we say to ourselves, we might need to pull back here. Maybe we should modify what we're saying about God's knowledge. Maybe God just knows all things generally. 
Maybe he knows all things according to their their bare outline. He can give a taxonomy of all things, but he doesn't actually know every single nanobe perfectly and completely. Well, what do we say to that? Well, we need to go to our Bibles. And if we go to our Bibles, we find immediate resistance against such thinking. Jesus highlights the particular and granular nature of God's knowledge of all things. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, but even the hairs on your head are all numbered. And that should strike us. If God knows every single hair on a man's head, every man's head, we can reason then that he knows everything, even if they appear insignificant to us. God knows all things, even small things. The Psalms speak of God's detailed knowledge of all things. For example, Psalm 147 verse 4 says this, He determines the number of the stars. He gives to them all their names. Just think, from our perspective, we look up at the night sky, we see these dim little lights in the skies. They're so small and they seem so insignificant. But here is God and he knows all of them and he knows all of them so well that he has given a name to each one. Amazing. Or think of Psalm 139, verses 2 through 4. The psalmist says, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You you discern my thoughts from afar. You you search out my path and my, my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. What is David teaching us in Psalm 139? He's telling us God's knowledge is a detailed knowledge. Nothing, not even the smallest matters of our lives are unknown to God. When you get up in the morning, when you go to bed, when you stand up and when you sit down, God knows all of those mundane things about your life and he knows them perfectly and completely. And David even presses this on us. He wants us to really consider the extent of God's knowledge. Think about this. After church, you're going to stand up and you're going to talk to people. David says, God knows exactly the words you're going to speak to the people you speak to. God knows all things, no matter how small they are. And so we're tracking here. Does God know everything? We say, yes. How about small things? We have to say, yes, of course. And we reply, well, I'm tracking. What about future things? Does God know those things as well? And here, some people deny God's knowledge of the future. Sure, God knows the past, and he he knows the present. He knows small things, but this God, he cannot know the future. He can't know that. How could anyone know that? But any any serious reader of the Bible can't go along with such thinking like that. Listen to Isaiah 46, verse 10. The Lord is speaking through Isaiah, and the Lord says this. I declare the end from the beginning and ancient times from what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and all my good pleasure I will accomplish. And others listen to verses like these and they they grant God's knowledge of the future. Yeah, sure, God knows future things, but then they they seek to modify it and tame God's knowledge of the future. Think here of a choose-your-own-adventure book. I had these as kids. I don't know if they're still around But it's a book, and as you read through the book, you're given a series of decisions. You can go left or right. You can wade through the river. You can take the bridge and cross over the river. And whatever decision you make on the page affects the rest of the book. And so if you make this decision, the book will often say, well, turn to page 35. And then you're presented with a new set 
of decisions. And then you make those decisions and they say, go to this part of the book. And so as you go through the book, you're choosing your own adventure. And that sets up possibilities and all sorts of different things. And so some think of God like the author of a choose-your-own-adventure book. And so they reason. God wrote the book. He's the author. And because he wrote the book, he therefore knows all possible decisions. And he knows all possible outcomes of those decisions. And so God knows all things, of course. He wrote the book. He knows all of the decisions that could possibly be made. But here they modify God's knowledge and they say, well, he is just the author of the book. And he just waits and sees what the reader will do with those decisions. So what should we say to to thinking like that as we think about God's knowledge of the future? Well, we can make agreement with part of what is being said. God certainly knows all contingencies. If there were 10,000 worlds, God would know all of them and all in them. Even more, he would know what was possible for all of them in all situations. But here is the sticking point. According to the Bible, God's knowledge of the future isn't speculative in nature. According to the Bible, God isn't sitting on his hands waiting for his people to see what they might do with their lives. To see what the nations might do. To see what the reader might do on page 30. God is just sitting there and waiting. What is the reader going to do? I have no idea. No, according to the Bible, he does not just know what might be. He knows what will actually come to pass. We get this even from Isaiah 46, verse 10. The Lord says, I declare the end from the beginning in ancient times from what is still to come. I say... My purpose will stand and all my good pleasure I will accomplish. God knows according to his own will. Not what might just be, but actually what will actually be. So we've got all these questions in front of us. And that last one might stick with us. Okay, God knows future things. Okay, I've got to take this. I see it in Isaiah. If I read the other prophets, I see it as well. But we follow up and we ask, well, God knows small things, future things, but, but how does God know these future things? How does he know these small things? How can he do that? What does it look like for him to do that? And here we need to be really good theologians. We have been learning about God all of these weeks, and we need to take all that we have learned and apply it to God's knowledge. And so we ask, well, how does God know We go back to the doctrine of God's aseity and we say God knows independently. Think about it. We know, how do we know things? We know from learning. We sit down and we watch something. We observe something. How do we know things? We go to class and then we listen to lectures. We read books. We memorize paradigms and charts and tables. But this is not how God knows things. He knows all things from himself. Or to put it like this, God's knowledge is self-derived. He does not learn from observation like you and I do. He does not learn from observation. And we have to to push on this. Why? Because that would make him dependent upon the things that he has made for his knowledge. Just think about it. If you're going to learn something, you're dependent upon the thing that you're learning. Because that thing has to yield its knowledge to you. But God knows all things in himself. He is dependent on no thing, no man, no woman to know what he knows. Or we could ask, well, how does God know? And we answer, well, God knows immutably. His knowledge does not increase. 
meaning he cannot learn anything. He knows what he knows. And his knowledge cannot diminish. He cannot forget something or unlearn something. His knowledge is perfectly complete. It never grows. It never increases. We could ask, well, how does God know again? Well, he knows eternally. There is no past in God, nor is there a future in God. He is the God who is, and that means no knowledge is past to him, as if he had to go back into the past like a historian and relearn the past and recapture the past. And he he doesn't have to go into the future to go explore the future, to, to ascertain what might be. He is eternal, and all knowledge is present to him instantly. We can keep going. Well, how does God know? Well, he knows simply. He knows simply. There are no divisions or parts to our God, and there are no divisions or parts to our God's knowledge. Just think about it. Some man might be an expert in one area. Perhaps he knows everything about birds. He's an expert. But when it comes to changing, for example, something really simple in his life, the the tire on his car, he doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't even know where to start. Or in other situations, some man might have read every book on a certain subject. He he knows everything about this subject. But when it comes to actualization, when it actually comes to to wisdom, being able to take that knowledge and apply it to 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 his life or to someone else's life, he can't do it. He doesn't know how to. It's just mere head knowledge. But as we think about God, he is simple. He is simple, meaning his knowledge is also his power. And his power is also his wisdom. It is not separated as a compartment within God. God has this mind and it's doing this thing. But God's knowledge is his power, is his wisdom. So God's knowledge is not isolated from his being. And when we're using all of these words, satiety, immutability, eternality, simplicity, we're just simply saying God knows as only God knows. And God knows so differently from us because he is the Lord. And so we've answered all of these questions and as we answer them, we get a really heavy dose of theology. We're thinking of God's knowledge and we first think of light. God knows himself perfectly, eyes and ears. He knows everything else completely. And we go through all of these questions and we're learning that God knows as only God knows. And what should be our conclusion here? our conclusion should be this, God's knowledge is big and grand. It's glorious, to say it another way. And it's so glorious, it should lead us to worship God. And that's what Paul does in Romans chapter 11. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And as we think about God in his knowledge... As we carefully study him and think about him, we should be in agreement with Paul. We should be using words like Paul used. We should be saying, oh, oh, this is what God is like. We should be using words like unsearchable and unscrutable. We should be using words like like depths. Oh God, there is no bottom to your knowledge, no limit to us. And the result is our heart should be lifted up to the Lord even more as we think about this, we should be asking ourselves, well, how do I put this doctrine to work in my own life? This should make a change 
for me with my heart and also with my entire life. What does God's knowledge mean to me as his child? Well, I want to give you some practical application about God's omniscience. And I want to take you to the book of Proverbs, and I want to read to you a chunk of verses. So Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. So Solomon is writing here, and he says this. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and incline your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. So just pause. We've got those verses from Solomon in front of us. Let's just ask a few questions. What does Solomon know? What does he know? Well, he knows this. He knows that God has all knowledge. If Solomon were here and he were listening to what was being said, he would say yes and amen. God is omniscient. I love that about God. So he's saying that. Listen to what Solomon says. The knowledge of God. But he also knows something else about the Lord. He knows that the Lord has knowledge, but he also knows that the Lord loves to give knowledge. The Lord is generous with his knowledge. He says, the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. And so Solomon is convinced, first of all, that God has all knowledge and that God loves to give knowledge away. And we ask the next question, well, what does that mean for us? God has all knowledge and he loves to give knowledge away. Well, Solomon makes his point clear. If we want the knowledge that God loves to give away, if we want this wisdom that God has, we need to go to him for it. It's that simple. But here we need to stick with Solomon. Because going to God isn't like going to a vending machine. God, I want some knowledge from you. I want some wisdom. I want your wisdom, your knowledge. Here's a couple coins. Out comes a can of knowledge from God. That's it. That simple. It's not that simple. Going to God demands a full reorientation of our lives. Just listen to Solomon explain what it means to go to God for knowledge. We can reason it through like this. If you want the knowledge that God gives, you must do something with your ears. You must make them attentive. If you want the knowledge that God gives, you must do something with your heart. You must incline it, or we could say you must bend it. If you want the knowledge that God gives, you must do something with your voice as well. You must raise it up. You must call out with it. You must plead with it. If you want the knowledge that God gives, you must do something also with your feet. You can't stand idle, standing in the same place, never moving. You need to go on a search, as if you were searching for hidden and rare and valuable treasure, as if you were hunting for silver. As we think about this, we ask, well, well, to whom, uh, to what are we to reorient our lives as we're, we're doing all these things? And the answer is this. We must go to the God of all knowledge. We must go to the omniscient God. We must tune our ears to his voice. 
We must bend our, our wills to him, bending our hearts. We must call out with our voices, not being silent or quiet or shy. We must go with our feet to God. The doctrine of God's omniscience as we see it unveiled through Proverbs chapter two is a doctrine that should move us as God's people. It is a doctrine that, that drives us to action. God has knowledge, I want it. I must do something with the whole of my being to get it. So as we're thinking all of this through, this means something for us, doesn't it? And so I ask you, what are you doing with the omniscient God today? Or to get really particular, are your ears attentive to what he has to say to you? Or are all they blocked up with other things? Nothing's getting in your ears. Are you distracted, disoriented? Is your heart inclined towards the Lord, the God of all knowledge? Or is your heart stubborn and calloused? It's so rigid that if you tried to break it, it would just snap into pieces. Do you call out with your voice? Do you plead with the Lord for knowledge and understanding because you know that God has all wisdom? Or are you shy? Are you quiet? Are you quiet? Is there nothing coming out of your mouth to God? Are you seeking? Are you on a search for silver, the best silver of all, God's knowledge? Or are you standing still? Are you idle? Are you going somewhere? Now those are good questions to consider and I would urge you to go to Proverbs chapter two verses one through eight and just sit with those words, letting Solomon sift you with them. What does my life look like? Do I really believe that God has all knowledge and that he loves to give it? And am I really doing something with that? But however you might answer those questions this morning, maybe you're answering in the affirmative, you're thinking about your life and you see this movement towards God. Maybe as you consider your life, you're not impressed with yourself. Or maybe you've never done anything like that before. Well, wherever you find yourself this morning, there is a promise held out to you in the scriptures. And it meets every single one of us and is applicable to all of us. And the promise is this. If you make your ears attentive, if you bend your heart, if you call out with your voice, if you go searching, God will give you knowledge and insight and wisdom. It's right in the book. Solomon is telling us, God gives wisdom to these people. And it's a promise for you, whether you're doing it or you've never done it, the promise is there for you. If you go searching, God will give it to you. And even better, we can relate this directly to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you call upon God, he's not just going to give you generic knowledge, generic wisdom. He's going to give you knowledge and wisdom incarnate in the person of his son. For all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are bound up in Jesus Christ. And if you go seeking, as the book of Proverbs calls us to in chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, you're actually going to find the son of God, for he is all wisdom and knowledge and understanding. And so let's pray. Oh, Father, we're thankful for this big, glorious doctrine of your knowledge. It stretches us, it hurts our minds, questions come up and they plague us like black flies chewing on our skin. But we trust in your word and what your word says. And so we ask, would you give us faith and obedience to believe and practice your word as it teaches us about your knowledge. 
Even more, Father, we pray that we would be faithful to Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. That we might do something with our hearts and with our ears and with our voices and with our feet. That we would go to you. And Father, would you meet us? Would you give us knowledge and understanding and wisdom? And would you give us all of these good things in Jesus? We pray this in his name.